What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Surf and Sales podcast. We are rocking and rolling in Q2, approaching the middle part of Q2, actually, in 2023. I'm Scott Lease, founder of Scott Lease Consulting, as well as co-founder of the Surf and Sales Summit, and you are listening to the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm here with my good friend and uh, business partner and buddy, Richard Harris. How's it going, Richard? It is going well. It is good to see. I haven't seen you in a while, so it's, you know... I, yeah. I hope our guest gets an, a word in edgewise because we may just catch up with each other. Well, you're usually worse at interrupting people than me. Yeah. So um, we'll see. How I don't know goes. what you're talking about. Why would I ever do that? See, I almost knew that that was coming. So I stopped talking to, in preparation for it. <laughs> so we're here with uh, with our friend, Gary Garth. Gary's the CEO of Elevate.io and author of the Zero to 100 Million Sales Blueprint. We're going to dig into those things. But first, Richard is here with a special commercial break. Absolutely. So we are super excited, Gary, for you to be here. And we are really appreciative. Um, As snarky as Scott and I are, we are so appreciative that HubSpot asked us to be on the HubSpot Podcast Network. Uh, We really do appreciate their support uh, and the supporting the surf and sales community and the sales community at large. Uh, I want to share with you a podcast called Success Story uh, by Scott D. Clary. Uh, He's also on the podcast network. If you don't know, the HubSpot Podcast Network has different genres of podcasts. They've got a sales group, which we're a part of. There's a marketing group. So there's different things depending on whatever your role is. So please be sure to check them out. We appreciate it. Um, there's a really cool episode that that um, that Scott did uh, with a guy named Michael Snoop Dillard. So anybody who's going to pull Snoop, I'm always interested in hearing from. Uh, and he's an entrepreneur, business owner of building a hospitality empire. Uh, he is known as a trailblazing powerhouse and beacon of inspiration. Oh, and it says she. Boy, did I mess that up. So. I'm willing to bet it's also Michelle, not Michael. Goodness we should gracious. Start over. <laughs> you make me do the whole thing over? No way, dude. Uh, Michelle, I really apologize. So it is Michelle Snoop Dillard, a trailblazing powerhouse and beacon of inspiration and shares her entrepreneurial beginnings, uh, listen, lessons from real estate missteps, which Scott and I are actually really passionate about. We love investing in real estate. It's one of our side hustles we talk about. So uh, she will. We're also really passionate about missteps. So passionate, in fact, that we front load the show with missteps just to prep everybody and set the right expectation. Yes. The entire show will be full of fuck ups by Richard and Scott. Absolutely. So, Michelle, again, we apologize. Scott, uh, thank you. Scott Clary, not Scott Lees. Scott Clary, thanks for sharing your podcast success stories and hope people go check those out. All right, Scott, introduce us to uh, our actual guest for the day. Yeah, again, like I said, uh, we welcome Gary Garth to the show, CEO of Elevate.io and author of the Zero to 100 Million Sales Blueprint. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thank you so much for having me, guys. At this point, I usually say to people, do you realize what pit of hell that you have stepped into uh, in agreeing to be on the show? I'm a I'm a long t- time listener uh, and a fan, so I I, I kind of know what I'm heading into. Okay, so he's not scared away. That's a good start. Well, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about uh you know Elevate.io and and kind of what you've been up to uh, recently, so they have some context for this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. 
So uh, my latest project, uh, I just launched it recently, last year. Elevate.io, we are a growth accelerator, and we particularly focus on the vertical addiction treatment and mental health care. Uh, and uh, we offer, uh, not uh, we're not just like a conventional marketing agency, we focus a lot on lead generation. Uh, we focus on CRM and tech enablement. Uh, and then lastly, uh, sales enablement. So basically securing that leads are coming in, they're not falling through the cracks and they convert at, at a higher rate than, than usual. And then helping them just expand, uh, build the reputation, create alumni programs, et cetera. So uh, uh, that's, uh, that's been my focus. Uh, I've started and, and launched, uh, exited, sorry, uh, six companies, uh, serial entrepreneurs since I was 19 years old. Uh, but I'm a sales guy with a capital S, which is also, that's always been the driving factor for my my company's and current project. Uh, that's what I love talking about. So excited to be here with you guys. Did you hear that, Richard? He said six exits. I know. I know. So I'm I'm curious if you had six exits, and, and I, I ask this sincerely because I think people want to know, how many did you not have exits of? Like how many things have you tried that didn't go well and what were the lessons that you were then able to apply to these next six or <laughs> are you the golden child and they've all no you, no you pick at, well at, there are people who pick well you know and yeah, i get yeah. that and i respect that it so. it sounds good but admittedly three of those six was basically just breaking even and going out with the the, the skin of my nose intact so to speak um uh, and then i would say and then i had a couple of uh, you know the two larger exits and at least at least i would say i'm trying to count here probably a dozen or so uh, failed uh, companies i tried to launch <laughs> what what's your favorite failure hmm cuz we all have one where we're like oh, and sometimes it hurt but it's probably one of the biggest lessons learned do you have a, a favorite failure yes absolutely uh i think Got to rewind the clock back to 2012 when I, uh, uh, me and my partners launched the digital marketing agency. We were very focused on on paid search, and we had uh, we were able to grow it to a couple of hundred clients, and things was really taking off. And then we decided to pivot in the midnight hour and start selling websites instead. And kind of forgot about like these small little players like Web.com and. Wix, etc., and just almost crashed and burned entirely. So uh, that failure uh, was fast that we had to get funding, repivot, so to speak, and uh, just double down, hone in on, uh, on on a core strength, so to speak. So you pivoted away and then pivoted back, or did you pivot something else? <laughs> yes, <laughs> we pivoted back. Yes, it, with with a slightly different approach and improved from those learnings. But it's basically just we figured out we can't be a jack of all trades, and we can't just can't couldn't just add on complementary services and solutions just because there was a demand and there was requests for it, and it made sense to add to the equation. But simply just say, okay, if people want these solution services, we can refer them elsewhere. But we just we masters this, right? Got it, got it. And how long did it take you to realize that? I think that, uh, that we need to pivot back. It took, uh, it took, I think, about five to six months, uh, basically lay, letting go about 80% of the staff. Uh, my two co-founders back 
back then we were back then we were living in Central America, Nicaragua. We talked in the United States, but we had a large headcount in Nicaragua. Uh, so they both moved back to their respective countries, and I stayed there with this little skeleton staff, and then rebuilt yeah. the company. What? Now I'm going to go. What made you pivot? What made you even pivot in the first place? Like you got a good thing going. You, you maybe you have this option to like double down on what you're doing, or let's pivot mm -hmm. and try and do this. Like. Was yeah. it just like a couple of people asked and you're like, oh my gosh, new shiny butterfly? Or like, what was it? <laughs> well, I think me as a personality, I think I'm always distracted by the next shiny object that looks intriguing to pursue. Uh, but there was actually some validity to it because we had a high churn, we had a high cancellation rate. Um, so our thesis was that, you know, as as the saying goes, don't, lie, don't let your ads write checks that you add that your website can't check, uh, cash, right? Um, we had to get the website fund foundation first because we were targeting so many SMBs that had a subpar website and we were driving a lot of uh, qualified leads to the website that said we weren't converting. So remember, this is also 10 years ago, so um, there was not as many options on the table as for website build-outs, et cetera, as there is now in landing page builders. But we figured it was a great idea to pivot the entire company to that because everybody needed that first and foremost. And then we could upsell them to PPC. Let's say, let's say for the sake of argument that Richard and I are about to launch a software company. Mm -hmm. But what are you know, one or two things that you would say to us as people who've never done this before? Hey, get this duck in a row at the beginning do this at the beginning? What, what's like, you know, one or two real good pieces of advice you would give somebody who's who's building a, a software startup for the first time? Yeah, put sales first. Uh, it sounds like very simple advice, but what do I base that on? I'm also like a part-time angel investor. I, I placed on my last uh, exit, I, I, I took some of that money, invested into different small projects, and I get pitched a lot, a lot of ideas. And I'm always amazed about all these hot tech startups and software companies. And they basically have a plan for everything. They've, you know, they've built out a, a fantastic product and, and done an analysis of everything else. Then kind of sales is like the last thing added to the equation, right? So I would prioritize building a sales plan. Uh, conducting proper market research, uh, mystery shopping of competitors, understanding what's going to be our angle, how are we going to penetrate this, what's the unique differentiators. Uh, so you can kind of create a, a, a playbook, right, that that your first sales hire or yourself can, can pioneer uh, as a founder. If you don't have that skill set popped up with somebody that can help you craft it and deploy it so it can be executed properly. Because we all... Think we're, and I'm preaching to the choir here, obviously, but we all know companies that you know have not been world class at marketing themselves, but they had a great solution and ultimately didn't work out, right? Yeah. What What about this put sales first um, kind of message? Uh, you know, moves mm -hmm. from like having a really good plan and a way to execute it to culturally speaking like inside the company there's a particular amount of respect um or or the type of treatment that sales people get i mean this is this is on i think a lot of people's minds because there was a company and a founder who had a, arguably a really big misstep about a, a week week and a half ago um hmm. 
and, you know, got a lot of negative backlash for it. And all sorts of stories have come out that have said, like, you know, it's always been a hierarchical thing where product and engineering is really valued in the company and salespeople are not at all. So mm-hmm. how does, how would Richard and I in this hypothetical software company, like what are, what's one thing that we could do to um, show respect to the role and the profession beyond just like have a plan for, for selling the product? I think it's a, as I put it, you know, in my book is about having good cross uh, department collaboration, uh, securing that sales is, is uh, you know, this first and foremost sales and marketing alignment, right? So it, it's consistent, the messaging, but also having sales properly understand that the product, you know, it's almost, uh, I feel sometimes, you know, it's always like you've got SDRs, AEs, and, and then you have uh, uh, sales engineers, right, that, that can answer all the questions. Why not equip the majority of your, the team with the, the, the skill set, the, the know-how to conduct proper demos or troubleshoot, et cetera? So that would be one element, but also, I mean, putting sales first is like, you know, just like the popularized concept of MVP, like really go out and try to stop pitching it at a beta level uh, instead of just launching and try to get funding and then then try to go out and, and, and penetrate the market. Um, that's something that I've always been, uh, you know, fortunate doing. And for, in, for instance, in my last company, we were very direct sales focused um, and we had thousands of clients, but we came to a point where we had to, um, we had to pivot again. <laughs> um we had some uh, we had some uh, some targets, contractual agreements, et cetera, with publishers like Google and Microsoft, and all of a sudden we didn't see the same support as before. So we were running out of cash. Cash flow was down, and we had to make some drastic moves. And and it, you know back then we figured, hey, what about channel sales? What about enabling other marketing agencies to sell for us? And instead of just you know going into analysis paralysis and creating a solution, how it's going to look and so forth, I went into my corner office and I picked up the phone and I started calling some agencies and I had an idea in terms of what would the solution look like and I started pitching it. And, and there was one that said, this sounds damn good. This is perfect. exactly what we need. A PPC director just, just quit. The timing is great. How do we get started? Let me send you over a contract. So I got a contract and then I went down to our fulfillment department. There was like 80 you know, account managers, account specialists, and I dropped the contract say, let's get to work. And it was like, what the heck are you doing? You're selling a product that doesn't even exist. And how are we going to buy X, Y, Z? And my notion as a salesperson was like, listen, I'm bringing revenue to the table. This is demand, there's high potential here. We don't have to worry about creating a product first and then try to go out and, and get acceptance for it. Like, let's let's look at the positive of that. So it, it's very cultural, obviously, as you say. It's about uh, and aligning teams better. Yeah. I, I want to talk to you about your book. You mentioned the the book zero to hundred million sales blueprint. I, I have two really important questions about the book. Okay. Yeah. The first one is how the hell did you write a 404 page book? I hold <laughs> it up right here, everybody. It's zero to hundred million sales blueprint, 404 pages. Fun fact. That is longer <laughs> than all three of the books that I've written combined. You also haven't made a hundred million dollars, Scott. Yeah, well, that's the answer right there. I didn't do it a hundred million. That's probably right. I stopped at twenty-five 
and he kept going. Maybe that's the difference. How did you write a 404 page book? That's question number one. Number <laughs> two is, if you look at the back, there's a quote, a nice quote on here from a, a gentleman named Brian Girard, sales director at Outreach. Did you know that Brian Girard used to work for me? No way. For Outreach. Yeah. His first yeah. sales management job in tech. Fun fact. <laughs> That is Scott, you've done indeed. zero to 100 million. It's just not your 100 million. <laughs> yeah, I leave at 25 million and expect Gary to do the rest for me. <laughs> How did you write a 400 well, page book? Yeah, well, yeah, good. I, I didn't set out to write a 404 page book, to be frank, but uh, I wanted to write a book that uh, covers all the subjects because I think there's a lot of amazing, great books. I'm an avid reader myself, but they're very subject matter specific, right? So, if you are a founder, if like this hypothetical scenario, you uh, you and, and uh, Richard wants to start a software company, I can't just give you a book on, you know, the, the principles of persuasion or how to close more deals or how to do sales enablement. You need to understand the whole sales cycle, right? Uh, and, and so I just started getting that in, into a rabbit hole and all these questions pop up as as, as been asked by, by companies that I've been I've trained or invested in this like okay should we do direct sales or, or channel sales for instance that what are the pros and cons how do we go about that uh how to you know how to hire sales reps and and scale the majority that people add to the equation you know fail right um so how do you how do you uh, how do you build an onboarding plan and a coaching framework that enables more folks to succeed and how do you hire first the uh, vp of sales or sales leadership should you promote from within should you look externally um, how do you align sales and marketing? Uh, which KPIs, which sales metrics should you monitor, focus, and and look to optimize? Uh, and you know which kind of sales tech stack, and on and on and on. So as I just started going through all those different topics, I said, okay, this is going to be this is going to be one uh, thick ass book, but but it every all the information you need. And I always tell people, you don't have to read in chronological order. Just pick pick the topic that's relevant to your current journey and, and dive into that there you know what the answer is scott the answer is is that he's going to give it to you and he'll pay you 75 million dollars to cut it down to 180 pages i mean i'm in for that type of agreement if gary is <laughs> so how did you only if i only if i can get in on your uh, real estate investment guys yeah deal done 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 <laughs> so um how long just, you know, Scott's written books. I'm in the middle of writing mine. It, it, it's an albatross, man. It is huge. How, how long did it take you to write this book? A year. A year. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and that's what I'm running into and it's super frustrating. So, um, you know, so thanks for shattering my dream that you're like, I've got a, you know, I've got another 400 page book that'll teach you how to write this book in three months. <laughs> that's what I need next. Um, Gonna shift entirely, right? Like, um, you are you are you are you still in Colombia? Is that where you're based? Yes, sir. Yeah. Been here for two years, nearly. Yeah. So, what's it like? And I don't know. Do you sell? I assume you sell to the U.S. market. What markets do you sell to for your U U.S. predominantly? So, and the reason the reason I'm asking is, what do we need to understand about? either selling into a different market into a Nicaragua or a Colombia or South America mm -hmm. or 
Europe or Australia or whatever, that, you know, I think you have this outside perspective, right? You're selling into this market. You're also, it doesn't sound like, you know, based on your accent, doesn't sound like you're uh, a native of, uh, you know, American from US. Denmark. So, yeah, correct. You know, so yeah. what, what are the things we need to know about upping our IQ to sell to different cultures? Oof. I mean, it's a, it's a big one. And I've been kicked in the balls a couple of times for that. Um, I actually have a chapter on that as well in the book <laughs> in terms of uh, what, where, where to outsource, what to delegate for the sales, uh, sales so process. Ta- so talk about it. Like, I, it's, not, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, this is stuff exactly. people don't know. So Yeah. Like, for instance, like, uh, and this is obviously before COVID and this globalized outsource world we now live in, but it was less... There was, you know, we we came to Nicaragua back then. It was uh, 2011, and, and there was only call centers there, and uh, you know, a high high volume of bilingual, talented, underemployed people working in a call center with a marketing degree, which we didn't tap into, right? Uh, but when you come in with a with a foreign mindset and a different culture. Uh, you know, you could, in the beginning, I was very, you know, forced, trying to force something upon them, right? The best thing I can recommend people is that if you're selling into a new market or if you're looking to expand your offering into new markets, just embrace the culture and do not try to change it, right? Like, for instance, here in Colombia or Nicaragua, for that matter, or most other Latin American countries, because I was, as a channel partner with Google, kind of a, a vision was to try to expand uh, offices and market share into every Latin American country, which was a uh, the growth opportunity for them back then. Uh, all these countries, you know, for instance, uh, they have a completely different vision on on work life balance. It's like you know, uh, they 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 really enjoy life and uh, try to take away a holiday from them, then you will be crucified, basically, right? You can try to throw extra money at them, and you can say you have to come in. Clients come first, and clients are king. And here's the culture, and here's our values, and da 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 da. Give them the full spiel. And they will basically just say, fuck you, I'm out. I need to be with my family here. This, this, And if there's a holiday, for instance, on a Sunday, they move it to a Monday. Basically. So you kind of just have to ad- adapt to those kind of things first and foremost, right? But with that said, I love it. I love every part of it. I, 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 you know, I, I embrace it now. I don't try to you know, twist people's arms and, and change and just say, okay, what's the good things about this? And how can we, how can we leverage that and, and make it a win-win scenario? So what level of training do you have to give to them to understand how to actually sell into a U.S. market, or yeah. is sales sales, right? Uh, well, most of my sales uh, client-facing staff is expats, right? Um, it's a lot of expats here in Medellin, Colombia. The reason I'm here is that they have this vision of becoming the Silicon Valley of Latin America, and this was back in 2016 uh, when I lived in Miami. Uh, with my last my last company, last project, uh, one day just this organization Pro Colombia came and knocked on my door. It's like congratulations on we were like at that point Inc. Five Thousand Year Three or something like that. Then you get on all these lists and cold calling. Everybody wants to sell you something, right? Uh, so they were like, "Why don't you guys go to come to Colombia?" And I was like, "Yeah, why not?" So I came down and checked it out. Heard about all these tax exemptions and benefits. They just want to try to cultivate tech companies here. Uh, so there's a there's a, a ton of talent, but there's also a lot of expats that that, that want to come and work here. So it's not a challenge for us in that sense. And there's a lot of a lot of very smart people. I mean, 
it's just not the same favorable setup as it was maybe if you rewind the clock 10 years back because everybody can work remotely now and take a job for whichever company in the world. Uh, but there's definitely still still advantages to it. That's really cool. I, I like that. Um, so we're going to, I got to take a quick commercial break, um, but don't go anywhere, everybody, because I get to read it live and let's see if I. I'm going to look up surf it. spots in Colombia while you do that. Yeah, yes, so sir. Scott's gonna because then we're gonna grill you and see how uh see how much you're surfing these days. So um again, want to give a great shout out to HubSpot for putting us on the HubSpot podcast network. Please check out the other shows that are there. Um, and this is something they put together we want to share with everybody because we know that everybody's under pressure right now. Uh more leads, more deals, do it faster, do it with better insights, all that kind of stuff. And you know. In some cases, you might be doing it with less. And so the point of us bringing this up is that HubSpot's not just any CRM. Uh, it's obviously easy to set up. It is definitely easier, has more intuitive use, and it's very customizable. Um, and that's where, you know, you're looking for HubSpot CRM. It's easy for everyone to use on day one. It helps teams be more productive, drag and drop your way Uh attention grabbing emails and landing pages scott i'll have to teach you about drag and drop later i know you're a little technologically challenged um you can set up your marketing automations and give away uh every contact the white glove treatment that they deserve so you can actually democratize your engagement with your own prospects and customers so they've also added ai uh so they have a ton of content assistance to help you write the right messages that will uh, approach Scott in a way that he wants to be approached, which is actually never, but um, let's see if this will work for you. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's really cool. So please check out the HubSpot CRM. We really, really appreciate their support. And uh, there's a link in our show notes to it as well. So, all right, Scott, back to you. I've, I've hey, found great, it to have. I found at least a half dozen spots in Columbia that are, are worth exploring. I want to ask Gary a little bit about uh, partner and channel and affiliate sales and, and this type of thing. This has been on my mind a lot of late. Um, what is the main thing that people get wrong about building out some type of channel sale like this? Mm -hmm. Good question. Um Sales enablement has to be on fucking steroids to say it the least. Um, just you know, partnering up with companies and having an offering that complements with, with your solution is just not gonna cut it, right? Um, that I learned that the hard way, uh, and I also worked very closely with you know Google and Microsoft channel sales for over a decade, and I saw how much you have to invest in supportive collateral like what we did on our end what, what i found our work is that's almost you basically make it as easy as possible for these resellers affiliates so forth to push your products so like to give you specific examples um we went out and said okay we don't just fulfill your order if you need xyc product we don't just create the campaigns optimized report and do all that stuff if you have an opportunity we'll create the proposal for you we jump on the call and pitch it with you, right? You need a pitch deck, you need data, you need any market research, we'll equip you with that too. Uh, you have to also, you know, align align objectives, everything from incentives, make sure that there's no conflict there. Um, wouldn't, it, and, wouldn't it just be easier if, if uh -huh. you would have just said to them, listen, just tee up the intro 
and then get out of the way and and we'll do all of this stuff on our own and and then we'll cut you a check when we close the deal no no i don't think so because I, most resellers they want to own the client relationship right so that's you know that's the unique value and that's just adding it could be that the client has a specific demand or request they need this solution added to the equation in order to work with you so you say you got to bring in X, whatever solution um so but okay uh, okay devil, devil's advocate hear me out i get that yeah. the reseller wants to own the client relationship okay i get that mm -hmm. but here's what i also think and i'll be curious to hear your opinion and, and maybe even uh -huh. richard's too on this. it's 2023 maybe richard's it's 2023 companies don't own client relationships anymore individual sellers own those relationships. Individual customer success people own those relationships. Those individual contributors bring those relationships with them from one company to the other. I'm not sure a company actually owns the relationship anymore. I, I don't disagree. Um, You're allowed disagree, to disagree but, if you want. But imagine throughout a, a, a sales process and now we just pitched pitched the client and now hey, here you go scott here's the now you're going to go into a new discovery process and ask questions that they already answered or oh, i provide you with a, a sales brief document but take it that most reps don't fucking read anything you're going to go in and start asking and, and asking questions and start all over again so it just gives you better control i would say in that sense yeah i i, I agree and i and i understand that desire from an employer perspective they want that control richard do you think that they're going to be able to hang on to that level of control beyond I think, so i think, I think the, the challenge might be scott is it, it, from my knowledge of you is not really having worked with professional reseller organizations that exist so let's say which is different than like what you're doing with GTM United, where you're paying out referrals to bring other people in. That's simple. That's it's almost a B to C play. When you know, in the big reseller world, there's this Gary Garth reseller, and he has these clients, and they come to Gary because they want to purchase their computer, their Microsoft Windows, their monitors. They want to purchase all this stuff in one place, right? And as it gets nuanced when it happens with software, then there's this opportunity for, you know, Scott Lee's software to come in, but Gary's probably not going to give up that big client. Um, and so it's a question of how do you find the right way, Scott, to leverage for each of you to leverage each other and for Gary to, to build mm -hmm. that trust. Now yeah. to your point, Scott, if I own the relationship with this other client that Gary wants, then that's a slightly different game too. So there's this, it's a different complexity model than just sort of the basics. Yeah, I do okay. like Scott. Okay, but, that, I, but let's say I work for Gary's reseller company and Gary, right. you, can, you can answer this one. This is a, a healthy debate. Let's say I work for Gary's reseller company, okay? And I do really right by this particular client for years, okay? And then I leave Gary's reseller company for whatever reason. And I go somewhere else. Don't you think that that particular seller in 2023 and beyond is going to reach out to that client on behalf of their new employer and try to- Absolutely, as they should. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like the seller, individual contributors have more power than they ever have before. 
but that's that's time. the point of you're going to go find another Gary reseller and that that new reseller Richard reseller is going to trust you more because you're going to try and help bring this new client in so it's I I don't I think both there's room for both and it's absolutely worth experimenting um it it's there's just a lot of that political bullshit Scott that you and I don't like when you start to get to this a larger of scale of things right <laughs> a lot of that yeah. well what do you what do you think Gary this is your arena I love I love channel sales I think uh, most companies should uh, take advantage of it uh, yep. there's a lot of opportunities and I mean, if you get it right, you can scale faster. Than, I mean, we all know it's it's challenging to build a direct sales, inside sales team. Holy shit, right? Uh, <laughs> that's where you got all the gray hair and, and your beard probably, right? Uh, or my beard as well. I mean, it's just inevitable. It's a fucking headache. It's also... And <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so but, but not saying that there's implications with, with channel sales as well obviously i mean it's less margins it, to some extent you're putting your brand yep. reputation at stake you don't have control of the, you know the, the pipeline or the, the sales process because you're, you're giving it to somebody else they're, they're in control you don't have that same influence uh but at the same way if you get the incentives right uh if you get the right people on board and if if there's some synergies like so you cross sell into new markets new regions uh, and then you're able to effectively enable them to sell holy shit it can go fast and i know that for a fact because let's look at the biggest companies they're all channel sales right what about your 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 friends from hotspot they're, they're all about channel sales uh google uh, the, the predominant revenue i know for them was the channel sales that has always been at microsoft etc uh, i think so Here's, I'm going to interrupt because that's what Scott says I do. Um, that how long does it take to properly build a good channel? Because I think it takes two years and a lot of companies don't get that or they don't want to wait that long. What is your, you, you've probably built more of them and know them better than I do. What is your opinion? No. How long does it take to get a good one going? I, I would say I would, I would concur. It would take, it would take a couple of years Unless, for instance, you've already been, uh, you know, you had a successful direct sales model. So you know all the ins and outs. You know exactly how it should be so all the pertinent metrics, KPI, everything you need to establish. You have a ton of sales collateral that you can refurbish, so to speak, and, and enable sellers with that. Then you can maybe shorten it down. But there's still a lot of internal processes, a lot of key roles and hires, you gotta go out and recruit partners. It's not a short sales cycle. It's gotta fit in with their agenda, their roadmap, their their their, their plans. So so yeah, I would give it a couple of years. So so to gain traction. So Scott, I want you to do me a favor. Grab his book, and uh, in a second, just read out a couple of the chapters, titles of the book, so that people understand what's in there. Like, um, and Gary, while he does that, um, you know, what chapter of the book is channel sales? So can, can I give you a, a fun fact now after you said that commercial break with HubSpot? Back in 2016, with my last company, uh, we had the HubSpot market, marketing uh, module back then. Uh, and my partner was an inbound in, I think it was Boston, uh, at the annual conference, right? Right. And uh, they just, yeah, we, we're just launching now the sales CRM beta. Right, beta with a big B, 
uh, and my partner Andrew, he called me the robust ah oh, because we loved the marketing uh, marketing platform. We used it at, at my last company, and uh, and then he said, I said, and I mean, let's get it right away. Sign up. <laughs> so I think we were one of the first clients, uh, first partners on. Uh, That's on, cool. On, on yeah, yeah. So here's here's. Listen, listen to my favorite chapter titles, Richard, since okay. you had for this, while, while Gary thinks of a question to ask us. Chapter two, I got 99 problems, but sales ain't one. That's pretty funny. I like that one a lot. What about um, in God we trust, everyone else bring data? This is good. That's pretty good, That's pretty good right? Uh, there was one more I wanted to say. Oh, outsource and delegate, but never the heavy lifting. Ooh, that could be a good topic in general. That's a really good yeah. one. <laughs> this is cool. Whenever so, you guys want to have me back, I'm ready. Oh, we're ready. We're ready. <laughs> uh, so what questions do you have for us? This is how we sort of wrap up the show. What, anything you would like to ask us or we can talk more about your cool book? Absolutely. I, yeah, that's a couple of things I have in mind. So... Let's say in a scenario, uh, I'm going to just talk about my specific scenarios, actually. So I'll get your input. Um, you have a total addressable market of about, say, 10,000 companies, very niche, vertical, specialized. At which point would you look to uh, expand, uh, target other verticals or so? Uh, how 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 deep would you look to penetrate before you look to expand or would you stay on course? It's a really good question. Uh, I'll speak. Go, ahead, go first. No, go ahead. Go ahead. So it depends on how you're defining that first vertical. In my opinion, a startup, you know, let's call it series A, even series B, really should only try to go after three, maybe four verticals total, right? Um, and the key is to get to the use cases for those verticals, um, meaning what pains are being solved, not what you do for them, which are very similar, but very different to that point. Um, I think what you do is you have to go deep enough to be valid in the marketplace beyond product market fit to really own that vertical. And then the CEO has to do the exact same thing they did back with the first vertical. Go and start talking to new customers. Mm -hmm. Go do the exact same thing. Start from square one. Pretend you don't even have a CRM. You don't even have a sales process because maybe the process is going to be different. And mm -hmm. so what it, I see happening is, I think someone just wrote about it too, um, that see and the indication of that probably be when i have a head of sales that i can trust and a team of salespeople i know can go do it that's when i'd start to explore the next vertical um, mm -hmm. as a leader and not get sucked into all these other meetings and there's no mm -hmm. fine there's no specific line but that to me is an indication of when do i look for that next vertical um mm -hmm. and again when you go to that next vertical i would do the same thing i would have done in the first one i probably give it away to three clients free in exchange for their feedback and case studies. And that's how I launched the next vertical. Anyway, Scott, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I'm going to attempt to give a, a little bit more scientific data-driven answer 
since I just read this chapter that said, unless you're God, you have to bring data to the table. <laughs> so I'm going to try to bring data to the table. Now, granted, I don't know anything about the product uh, or the price point or anything like that. But what I was thinking is like an average SaaS product of like $50,000 a year. Okay. So you said there's 10,000 uh, prospects in the total addressable market. So the first thing I thought of is 1%. 1% of 10,000 is 100 paying clients. 100 paying clients at 50K per year is 5 million bucks. You get to 5 million bucks, you can expand. Now, I don't know how long that's going to take. I don't know how easy that journey was to get 1% of the market. It could happen in a couple months and bang, let's expand to you know vertical number two. It could happen in three years, let's expand to vertical number two. So that was where I, that was where I started. I was like, well, 1%. Cause I, I'm a big believer in like, I don't want to expand into the second thing until I'm fucking crushing the first thing. And it's like almost Amen. like a pilot. Yes. Right. And I think it takes a lot of customer acquisition, a lot of onboarding of these customers, hmm. a lot of, you know, figuring out our process and ironing all these things out because I don't want to make all those same mistakes in vertical number two. I want vertical two to happen faster. So that was what I ended up with. What do you Good think? Answers, guys. What's your answer to your question? I, it's very aligned, actually. I was it, one, two percent as well. Um, I guess I, where I'm a little conflicted again is it's maybe specifically in, in, in my scenario and, and given some circumstances there. But once you hit that, say, one, two percent and that five, ten million dollar hypothetical. Uh, annual recurring revenue that's typically when it's a different size beast of company you know as it evolves and you know you it becomes very you know it has to be structured organizationally in a, a different way and you know this spreadsheet starts flying around and you know all the bullshit it becomes a different company yeah right? it's, it's a different beast so, than when it's so do you, you want to throw in, in a new, yeah. a, a, new <laughs> a new vertical a new expansion into the equation right there at that point is so yeah so I don't have the answer. That's why I wanted to ask what you but but I think we're on the same page there. It's a great uh, it's a great question. It's a great question and something that all of all of my clients, you know, ask about. Yeah. And I have these conversations with them every day. Yeah. You know, to Richard's point about, you know, don't go after more than I think he said three or four. I, I have that conversation with people all the time because as part of an exercise of like, let's figure out your ideal customer profile. Everybody I talk to tells me like, you know, yeah, on fucking planet earth is a potential customer. It's like, right. yeah, but Coleman, we got to narrow this thing down. We got to find the lowest hanging fruit, which is another chapter in, in Gary's book, by the way. Um, so yeah, narrow it down. I'm a big believer in like, narrow it down, get like myopically focused, trying to find the low hanging fruit. Scott, do you agree? Until it's easy. Yeah. Do you would you say that three or four is too many? And granted, it could be. I think three or four is too many at the very beginning. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Series A precede. You got to get one. I agree. I would agree with you. I wanted to make sure. I mean, again, I mean, I, it depends on like what the product is potentially, right. right? But you know, for anybody that's like a kind of verticalized platform or services mm -hmm. kind of play, it's like if let's say we sell to accountants, okay? Then I'm not moving off of accountants to start selling to insurance brokers until I've got like 1%, you know, a hundred clients basically in, in Gary's kind of 
model. I like that hundred. Selling to three. I'm not selling to three or four different verticals from the jump with everybody. I'm not doing that. Yeah, smart. I can support that. So there. Look, look at that, Scott. We got to the end of our 500th episode, and I can finally support something you said. Well, you know, it's like a it's an anniversary moment. Good job. We did it. We made it. Hey, thanks so much, Gary, for being a part of the show, man. Where can everybody uh, find you and stay connected? Yes, thank you again so much for having me. Go to uh, Elevate.io or my website, GaryGoth.com. And while you're there on my site, uh, I do have a special offer for all the hardworking sales reps and entrepreneurs, solopreneurs trying to uh, crack the code on sales. If you go to my website, you go to the book section, uh, you type in the coupon surf and sales throughout the checkout process, you're going to get this 404-page bad boy discounted from $30 to zero. Um, ah, wow. Look at yes. that. Yes, sir. Jump on that, everybody. I've got the book. I've been playing around with it. There's some killer stuff in there. You heard Gary talk. He knows what he's talking about. Killer offer. Free book. Get on Gary's website. Use the code surf and sales. Educate. Get better. All that good stuff. That's awesome, man. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Richard's going to put all that in the show notes because apparently I don't know what show notes are. I I need someone to call and tell me how many links am I allowed to have in my show notes? How many are too many? Am I supposed to have one, four, 12? I don't know. You're asking the wrong person, man. I know. I know. I know. So. All right, man. Gary, this has been awesome, man. Uh, looking forward to it. I hope Likewise. I hope we get to see you in November at Surf and Sales uh, oh, in Costa Rica. Yeah, you're half, like an, you're like closer than we are. I've, li- I've lived seven years in Nicaragua. Went to Costa Rica all the time. Yeah, believe yeah, it or not, uh, I, I just I just kept failing at surfing. So I'm sorry. I can't. I can't. You don't have to you surf. Guys. Listen, you can take the guy out of Denmark. <laughs> you can't take Denmark <laughs> out of the guy. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right, Gary. Thank you, man. I'll be there with bells and whistle on. Thank you so much, guys.